millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It is no small skill to quit the game when one is winning, because one secures one's gain, and one can count that, which remains among one's possessions. Cardinal Mazarin. On January 7, 1646, France issued its third peace proposal, which sought greater gains for the country and a more ambitious post-war settlement. It revolved around its recent acquisitions along the Rhine, including Brissac, Philipsburg and some minor Rhine fortresses, as well as Lorraine, Alsace and Franche Comte in their total form. Cardinal Jules Mazarin, the French minister and the individual charged with guiding French foreign policy, was confident that by demanding more than they previously had, France could use the additional demands as later bargaining chips that could be negotiated away in the form of carrots for the enemy. France's position, Mazarin believed, was strong enough to demand such satisfaction, because neither the Habsburgs nor Bavaria were able to withstand France along the Rhine and Sweden had so penetrated the inner sanctum of the Habsburg heartlands that further fighting would threaten the very existence of the Habsburg family itself. Life in the two vital Westphalian cities of Osnabrück and Münster, adopted as a diplomatic and representative base by Sweden and France respectively, was alight with a flurry of activity. The need within the negotiations taking place within them was to ensure that every decision, every treaty signed and every agreement reached, was approved by governments not only represented by France and Sweden, but also by representatives of the princes of the Holy Roman Empire that had elected to leave Frankfurt and seek to represent themselves. Frankfurt had sought to uphold the Emperor Ferdinand III as the sole voice of the Empire. It had tried to establish that voice through interstate negotiations in the city with the goal of then assembling this voice into a strategy that could be represented at the two cities. It failed with the coming successes of France and Sweden, as well as the worsening situation of Ferdinand, who bore witness to his abandonment first by Brandenburg in 1641 and then Saxony in 1645. But even before then, France and Sweden had invited the princes of the empire to send their own plenipotentiaries, plenies, who would then represent their position and theirs alone. Once the call of the Franco-Swedes was heeded, and once the Frankfurt Assembly closed, ending attempts to present an empire-wide voice led by the Emperor, 
it became obvious that the emperor could no longer claim to represent all of his German subjects. He could merely claim to represent the Habsburg family. The Plenies who resided in Osnabrück or Münster endured frequent periods of waiting while the postal service caught up with the torrent of letters emerging from the two cities. Letters could take as many as 30 days to reach the capitals of the Plenies in question, which could seriously slow negotiations. It was thus imperative that the Plenies could claim to legitimately speak for their home government, thereby granting them to make the level of decisions necessary to engage in cross-state negotiations with numerous other state reps. It was a difficulty that we today cannot grasp, since the progress of transport and technology no longer impedes the nature of diplomacy as the Plenies endured in these years. It meant that Plenies had to make sure that they had been granted full powers to negotiate, which, as we learned last time, effectively just meant that they had been granted the authority to speak on behalf of their home government. Osnabrück was reserved mostly for the meetings of Protestant German princes, who frequently held joint meetings there, and the deliberations of Sweden with its German allies. It was where the Swedish Chancellor, Axel Oxenstierna, would go if he wanted to meet the Plenies of any state in person and its deliberations were to be granted, like that at Munster, the status of diets, which injected the negotiations with a level of legitimacy and ensured that the emperor, at least, would respect their decisions as legally binding. Munster was similarly the place Mazarin would travel if he wanted to meet either of the Catholic factions or Catholic German princes in person. Bavaria, France and Spain all had invested heavily in their own plenies, and in the case of Bavaria, these only arrived when its Duke Maximilian recognised that the Emperor no longer spoke for the Empire as a whole. The Dutch would send their plenies to both cities, but as we'll learn later, most of their negotiations were concluded at Osnabrück, since the French worked heavily to ensure Spanish and Dutch plenies rarely frequented the same room together, for fear of the Dutch extricating themselves from the conflict early. There remained numerous blockades to peace despite the uniform desire to end the conflict. Furthermore, although both the Habsburgs and the Triple Alliance of Sweden, France and the Dutch wished to better their military position and from there acquire a stronger negotiating position, by early 1646 a storm of caution had rolled in over Europe, as French plenipotentiary Abel Servian, in particular, feared the results of another campaign for the inconsistent France, when he wrote to Mazarin that, If Bavaria is defeated, we will lose a great deal. If the Imperialists are defeated, the Swedes will become insufferable. If the Swedish are ruined, it will be even worse. The Emperor will speak more highly, and Bavaria will no longer be as favourable towards us. However, though France wished to further its position through diplomacy, and feared the results of another campaign... Its ally Sweden believed that without further military action, its soldiers would start demanding the pay that was due them, and possibly carry out a mutiny, as they had done before. And such an action now would seriously upset Sweden's position in the negotiations. In the event, Axox was determined to direct Swedish military attention towards Bavaria, since he viewed Bavaria as the party responsible for preventing total Allied victory in 1645. In addition to this, Axox informed Torstensen that he had to link up with his French ally for the ventures of 1646 to be successful, 
since Axox also understood the failures of 1645 to be due to the splitting of the Franco-Swedish armies in numerous directions. The epiphany that France and Sweden should unite their campaigns is explained by Derek Croxton in his book Peacemaking in Early Modern Europe, which we have been drawing on heavily for the past two episodes, and most definitely for the final two as well. Quote, Surveying the results of the 1645 campaign, Torstensen concluded that the Allies had been defeated by superior cooperation on the part of the Habsburg and Bavarian armies. Bavarian troops had been present at Yankov, without altering the course of it to be sure. More decisively, the Emperor's reinforcement of Maximilian with several thousand troops in the fall of 1645 had prevented the French from taking advantage of their victory at Nordlingen. Torstensen therefore proposed that the French and Swedes link up in 1646, advancing on a single front in Germany, thereby preventing either one of them from being fallen upon by two enemies. End quote. The Emperor's reinforcement that we encountered in the last episode, as is mentioned here, pushed the French all the way back from the Danube to their Rhine fortress of Philipsburg. It was a dizzying retreat made all the more confusing because of the seemingly endless bank of men Ferdinand III seemed able to muster when the circumstances required it. Yet, though that last-ditch effort of Ferdinand in support of Max was impressive, it was a last-ditch effort. Ferdinand did not obliterate the enemy, as Habsburg counterattacks had done before, he merely frustrated their endgame. All the while, Max of Bavaria, himself saved only by the intervention of the Emperor in his lands, was even more desperate for peace, when it was plainly obvious that no force save Ferdinand's home guard could defend his lands. Thus, it would seem as though Mazarin would merely have to give the go-ahead, and Franco-Swedish forces would rampage through Bavaria, eliminate it, and then turn to Austria itself. And yet, Mazarin, though he was initially agreeable to the plan, began to get cold feet for numerous nagging reasons. Try as he might, Mazarin just had too many reservations to put into practice what on paper looked so appealing. Mazarin became concerned that once the two armies linked up, Sweden would try to reassert its claim to the remnants of the French Rhine army, the ancestors of which, if you remember, had been led by Gustavus Adolphus a decade before. Mazarin worried that the French commander, Turenne, would have his Weimarian and Hessian German allies lured out of the French side and brought over to Sweden, thereby weakening France's military position and perhaps its negotiating position as a result. Mazarin also harboured a degree of suspicion for Torstensen and believed that once Turenne reached him he would be overcome by his influences and that Turenne would be unable to assert his position in the Allied camp owing to the distance of the joint army from the French bases. On top of all this, Mazarin feared that Torstensen and Turenne combined could march into a defeat that could destroy France's German allies and ruin any chance of a strong negotiating position. Rather than communicate these concerns, some of which, as you can judge, were fair, others were less so, Mazarin elected instead to simply prevent Turenne from linking up with Sweden by less savoury means. He told Turenne to simply lie and say he was trying his best to link up, but at the time was being delayed. Hardly an impossibility in the circumstances. If that failed, he was to maintain a safe distance from the Swedes, while still in support, so that they remained distinctly separate armies. 
If that strategy failed and the two armies ended up enmeshing their forces as Mazarin feared, then Turenne was to come armed with terms that would guarantee French sovereignty and manoeuvrability within the alliance, such as the promise that Sweden would help France take Heilbronn and Heidelberg before any other actions. However, there was another strategic reason for Mazarin not wanting to link up with Sweden. He had his own military plans for France and Luxembourg, where French forces were to strike a crippling blow against the Spanish there. If this enthusiasm seems strange for Mazarin, considering how fearful he was of attacking or helping the attack on the Austrian Habsburgs or Bavarians, then you're right, it is odd. It's one of those contradictions that we can look at now in hindsight and label as hypocritical, but at the time, to Mazarin, the idea that France should attack where the Habsburgs were now weakest made sense. Mazarin was pushed in this direction for two major reasons. First, he had just helped ensure a temporary truce of three weeks occur in mid-February with Bavaria, which left Turenne idle, and second, a great French fear of being abandoned by the Dutch meant that a harsh attack against the Spanish had to be made while the Spanish-Dutch talks were ongoing. This idea of Mazarin's soon became an odd obsession though, as Croxton notes. Quote, As Mazarin pondered fighting Spain without Dutch aid, he became convinced that the best solution would be to use Turenne's army to attack Luxembourg. If the Swedes proved difficult, Mazarin suggested that at worst, Turenne could get Torstensen to allow him to campaign in Luxembourg for six weeks, if necessary by bribing him under the pretense of paying a subsidy to the Swedish army. Mazarin confessed his great passion for the plan to attack Luxembourg, adding that, I desire it with all the more ardour since I see that the Dutch have not yet entered the campaign and they do not seem to be in a hurry to enter it soon. By attacks in both Flanders and Luxembourg, the success of which Mazarin did not doubt, France would show the world that Spain was not better off fighting France alone than fighting France on the Dutch. At the same time, they would show the Dutch that they were not as necessary to France as they believed they were. End quote. Mazarin tried to thus sound out his plenies and see if sending Turenne to Luxembourg before the truce with Bavaria expired was possible. The plenies totally binned the proposal, explaining that it would take far more than a month to conduct such a campaign in Luxembourg, and that Torstensen would never accept the French bribe, however it was disguised. Additionally, the plenies were conscious of how Germans viewed France, and believed that suddenly nipping up to Luxembourg would appear opportunistic and as though France was abandoning its German allies. Mazarin was in effect trying to deconstruct the diplomatic circle of negotiations and mutual pressures that had ensured the halting of negotiations in early 1646. Trotmansdorf, Ferdinand's chief negotiator at the two cities, was being pressured to hold back on granting the French what they wanted by the Spanish since the French demands of Alsace, Lorraine and Franche Comte would have severed for good the Spanish road. Thus, Spain in effect was holding back Trotlinsdorf from making the concessions to France that some in Ferdinand's court hoped would bring a lasting peace. In response to the stalling from Spain, France used Bavaria as a bargaining chip. Max of Bavaria had little love for Spanish interests along the Rhine, and had frequently declared his unwillingness to continue the war in the interests of Spain alone. Thus, while Spanish plenies pressured Trotmansdorf to stall, Bavarian plenies pressured Trotmansdorf to accept. 
Maturin knew that Max of Bavaria feared the oncoming campaign season even more than he did. At least France had an army, Bavaria barely had the resemblance of one, and Max certainly knew he could not rely on Ferdinand anymore. Thus, Max threatened, as Mazarin hoped he would, to make a separate peace with France if Trottmannsdorf did not agree to satisfy French demands. Ferdinand took this threat very seriously, and actually sent orders to his chief negotiator to make peace with France before the start of the campaigning season, by surrendering Alsace if necessary. Max and Ferdinand both hoped that if France was simply given Alsace, then the demands for the fortress towns of Breissach and Philipsburg, as well as the iffy claims on Lorraine, could be settled more easily. However, by now, Trattmannsdorf had become swayed by the Spanish, and attempted to hold out on bowing to even Ferdinand's orders for as long as possible. Gaspar Penaranda, the chief plenipotentiary for Spain, argued that France could be placated by offering Italian towns in place of the Rhine lands, and he attempted to persuade Trottmannsdorf of this and get him to offer this deal to France. The negotiating position was in fact approved by the Habsburg House for offer on the 21st of March 1646, but Mazarin was informed of it and brushed it quickly aside. Penaranda was not done yet though. Mazarin has sought to ruin the attempts of the Habsburgs to make joint propositions, but the Spanish had one trump card left, the Dutch, and their separate negotiations with Spain. Thus we come back to Mazarin's desire to attack Luxembourg. The end result of the diplomatic counterattacks was that the threat posed by Dutch abandonment of France was the worst possible outcome. So Mazarin sought to shatter Spanish and imperial hopes by showing that just because the Dutch weren't there didn't mean France would be any easier to deal with. However, the Dutch peace talks with Spain continued to stall, which was bad for Trottmannsdorf, and Mazarin's plans for an attack on Luxembourg also never came to fruition, which was bad for France. Trottmannsdorf thus tried to hurry the Dutch talks along by attempting to leak out secret deals that Penaranda informed him Spain was seeking to make with France such as marital alliances, and the infamous trading of Catalonia for Flanders, which would seriously ruffle Dutch feathers when it was revealed. Meanwhile, Mazarin focused even more heavily on trying to detach Max of Bavaria from Ferdinand and use Maximilian's fears of his own ruin to push for French satisfaction in negotiations without actually having to substantially fight. Mazarin was convinced in early 1646 that Max of Bavaria wanted France to gain Alsace, so as to assist Bavaria in the event of an attack by Spain or the Emperor in the future. But French plenies were adamant in trying to convince Mazarin that the reality was far different, and that though Max needed France, he certainly did not want to see it gain its bridge across the Rhine into the Empire that Alsace would have guaranteed. The situation on the ground was far different, French plenies claimed, and thus in the spring, Mazarin should try and gain Bavarian compliance by other means. Mazarin's goal was simple. He wanted to acquire French territorial satisfaction, and ensure that France got what it wanted along the Rhine. Bavarian interests in the region were obviously an issue, so Mazarin advised his plenies to hover between the strategies of utilising Max's distrust of Spain and threatening Bavarian ruin with allowed French preparations for another campaign in spring 1646. Mazarin, of course, did not want to campaign in the region at all, but he had to maintain the illusion that he did, 
and keep up appearances that all was well in the French camp, despite the now burning desire to end the war and focus French attention elsewhere. Spain was basing its hopes on a resurgence in fortunes or dissension within France, and the regency within the state was viewed from the outside as unnaturally unstable, owing to its youthful king and Spanish Habsburg as Queen Regent. Mazarin knew that French plenies would have little weight behind their voices if the threat of impending French force was not apparent to Spanish and Bavarian alike. He noted to the plenies in December 1645, You can rest assured that we are doing everything necessary in order to have greater forces next year on all fronts than we have had up to now, without regard to any peace negotiation, it being certain that the strongest reason we can give to our enemies to lead them to a fair accommodation is to make them realise that we are in such a state that we cannot fail to make more progress if the war continues. Projecting an indifference to peace in Europe was important so as to portray France as a strong enemy in Spanish eyes, and yet such a projection could also land France in hot water with its German allies, if it was seen as the state that was indifferent to the war, in other words, indifferent to their suffering. France would thus have to appease sentiment in Germany, as well as at home, where a sizable peace party resided, by making quite public proclamations advocating peace while simultaneously continuing the war by emphasising French strength through private negotiations with its enemies. Mazarin was well aware of the contradictions inherent in such a stance, yet he maintained that he did want a peace, so long as it was a peace with glory for France. As he wrote to the Plenies in early 1646, for myself, although there is nothing in this world that I wish more ardently than to see this crown established in peace with glory and advantage in Christianity, I nevertheless avoid as much as possible to reveal myself to the world, so as to not prejudice your affairs and the advancement of your negotiations. And I submit myself sooner to be blamed by those who want to see me preach endlessly in the streets that France will do anything to have peace, hoping that events will soon show, by the conclusion of the peace, what intention I have had in my conduct. The best way to prove that one was indifferent to peace, Mazarin claimed, was to plan for the campaign of 1646 as though all was normal and rosy, despite the fact that we know he feared the results of such a campaign. This fear of Mazarin's may seem puzzling to us when we consider that the Imperials were effectively defeated by early 1646, but they had been supposedly defeated before when von Mercy had triumphed over the French, while their Swedish ally and its victories made Protestants everywhere swoon. Before Axox solidified his ideas for a joint Allied offensive against Bavaria then, Mazarin was already convinced in at least making the appearance of attacking Bavaria, so as to send Max fleeing to Trotmansdorf and forcing a capitulation to French demands by way of Bavarian threats to sign a separate peace with France and leave the Habsburgs alone in Europe. Events had proven in the past that the wily Max would only consider French demands if he was directly threatened, and thus Mazarin wanted to give the impression that he was, without hopefully having to actually risk anything. When Torstenson was informed by Axox that he was to link up with Turenne, Mazarin would have no doubt shuddered, because Torstenson, unlike the French, would be seeking an actual battle, rather than merely using the threat of one to scare Maximilian into peace. 
the truce with Bavaria in mid-April signalled perhaps the end of the first phase of this pressure, but it certainly denoted the fact that Maximilian of Bavaria feared what France would do next. The truce was seen as a three-week interval that France was to graciously grant Bavaria, so the Bavarian plenies could pressure the imperial Trottmannsdorf to satisfy French demands and enable an honourable extraction for France from the war. Failing to persuade Max, to persuade Trottmannsdorf, to persuade Ferdinand then, Mazarin decided instead to simply target the source and negotiate with Spain more directly in March 1646. However, when Mazarin began attempting to close negotiations with Spain, he must have known that anything he said could and would be used against him when Spain then went to talk to the Dutch. The incredibly controversial trade of Catalonia for the South Netherlands would have been seriously problematic and tenaciously opposed by the Dutch. In addition to this, the Venetian mediator at the talks in Münster also proposed an alliance bound by marriage between Spain and France that would spell an end to their individual conflict. An additional proposal from the mediators was the idea of the French Queen Regent Anne, remember the sister of the King of Spain, mediating an end to the Franco-Spanish conflict because of her special relationship with both kingdoms. As fearful the Mazarin was at being abandoned by the Dutch, if the Dutch discovered all these nuggets, that France and Spain were swapping enough land to dramatically alter their borders, that the peace would be sealed by further marriage, and that it would be brokered by the special VIP of the sister to Spain's king and French queen regent, then there would have been murder. Thus made sure to leak and use against France everything it had proposed. His task was made easier by the return of the Dutch plenies to The Hague on the 26th of February to report on their findings. On their way towards the States General, the Plenies were made aware that French agents had tried to sound out the Dutch stadtholder, Frederick Henry, on whether he would approve the terms, effectively going behind the back of the Republican apparatus. By a combination of leakage and rumour, the Dutch Plenies were able to inform their brethren in the States General as to the negotiations underway between Spain and France. Croxton notes what occurred. Quote, all three points, the mediator's proposal of a marriage alliance and territorial exchange, the French discussion with Frederick Henry on the same matter, and the offer to let Anne mediate their war with France, were brought before the States General of the United Provinces on the 27th of February. An immediate uproar against France ensued. Speeches were made, pamphlets were printed, and pro-Spanish sentiment in the Dutch Republic soared. End quote. It should be noted that the Dutch were now not so much pro-Spanish following the revelations as much as they were against the idea of replacing a weakened Spanish presence in the region with a strong French one. A popular Dutch saying at the time went, France, our friend but not our neighbour. It was clear to Mazarin what was happening. The Spanish were trying to pressure the Dutch into a separate peace by letting it be known strategically that they were close to a similar agreement with France though of course they would still honour these Dutch negotiations. It is interesting how much this flummoxed Mazarin. He seemed more interested in hanging on to the idea of obtaining the South Netherlands in the first quarter of 1646 than anything else, despite how much this would dramatically alter the nature of Europe. The Dutch, having learned of the talks on proposed deals, became more difficult for Mazarin to sound out, and it soon became clear that the Dutch were either unwilling or unenthusiastic about supporting the French in the South Netherlands anymore, because any French gains would enhance their position, 
and thus possibly threaten the Dutch one in the future. Mazarin was thus concerned now that for any campaigning in 1646 that revolved around Flanders, the Dutch would either not aid France or seek to undermine French progress. The Dutch, for their part, no longer felt either the pressing threat from Spain in the region nor the need to aid France to combat that threat. France, many in the States General believed, was swallowing too many Spanish territories and thereafter calling it their own. This would be disastrous for future Dutch security. Mazarin tried to appease Dutch concerns by promising more money in an upcoming treaty, and by April this had in fact been signed, but the concern remained for Mazarin that the Dutch could not be relied upon in 1646 or beyond, and such concerns made him all the more eager to seek peace anyway. Bavaria, once again, became the target of these peace feelers, and it would lead to the temporary truce that we examined earlier, which began on the 7th of April 1646, that was due to last for three weeks. A truce had been dismissed before on the grounds that, without military pressure, Bavaria would just turn against French interests and re-cement its partnership with French enemies. But Mazarin felt that in spring 1646, Bavaria was doing everything France wanted, so to have a temporary truce would not cause Max to suddenly make an about-face. Above all, Mazarin wanted to relieve France from the possibility of losing everything in a bundled campaign, but he did face opposition from the Plenies, who believed that Bavaria certainly would use the opportunity to make an about-face, and that above all the news of the truce would greatly offend the Swedes. The truce would prevent France from making any military moves along the Rhine for its duration, and this was what Abel Servian, one of the leading French plenies in Munster, who supported the idea that such campaigns were not worth the risk, tried to communicate to his fellow plenies in the following letter. I beseech you to represent to his eminence how necessary it is to risk nothing on any front this year. We are at the point of gathering the fruits of all our labours, provided that we are patient and firm. If our generals do not carry out all these orders exactly, we run the risk of losing everything in an instant. Mazarin's belief that a single battle could change the outcome of negotiations at this late stage was somewhat irrational when one considers the state of the Habsburgs. However, the previous years along the Rhine, most notably the French withdrawal from the Danube to Philipsburg in late 1645, had convinced Mazarin that success could never be guaranteed and that to risk the French position on such military success was, for the moment, ill-advised. Therefore, French plenies were told to be more accommodating towards Bavarian requests for a truce, despite the damage it could do to French reputation at the two cities and among French allies. It was still a form of a stalling tactic, since Maximilian was expected to still advocate satisfying the French demands for Alsace, with all the more vigour during the truce, for the fear of what would befall his duchy once the truce expired and the French were still dissatisfied. So it kind of makes sense, but when one considers the fact that the Swedes were less than impressed with the truce, the whole idea of a truce in principle seems a bit misguided. Certainly there were stormy scenes in Osnabrück when the Swedish plenies were made aware of the truce. Axelox and Stierna even believed that the truce was merely a stepping stone towards a general armistice with Bavaria, and that France would seek to satisfy controversial Bavarian demands, such as the issue of the Palatinate, in return for the agreement. 
The difficulties of the Franco-Swedish alliance had become more apparent as the war wound down, and the inherent differences within the two states were brought out into the open. For starters, while Mazarin wanted peace and didn't want to risk a battle, Sweden was fully committed to using its military supremacy to eliminate Habsburg opposition and wring more complete concessions from the negotiations. Even in the way the two crowns conducted the negotiations was a cause for argument. Mazarin wanted to portray France and Sweden as the only two powers capable of solving the Germans' difficulties within the HRE and with their emperor and he wanted to delay this problem solving until France and Sweden got what they wanted from the negotiations. Sweden on the other hand seemed content to sort out German problems first, and this was a terrible idea, French plenies reasoned, because once German princes no longer had their problems, they wouldn't need France or Sweden's help anymore, and would thus be less inclined to support their demands in the negotiations. Indeed, it was the core strategy of Trotmansdorf to see these issues resolved for this very reason. The German princes relied upon the Franco-Swedish alliance to ensure that they got their own issues resolved by way of pressuring the Habsburgs into compliance. But if the Habsburgs seemed to give ground on key issues, then what was the point in allying with the foreign powers in the first place? Mazarin could not understand why Sweden insisted on following this vein and some plenies believed that it was because Sweden had already secretly reached an agreement on her own satisfaction, and that, with her own demands secure, she didn't need to either wait for France or follow the French protocols. Mazarin was constantly informed of the Swedish intrigues with Protestant German princes, to the point that some French plenies were sure that Sweden planned on continuing the war so as to set itself up as the head of a Protestant bloc in the HRE directed towards righting all of Ferdinand II's wrongs and eliminating the Habsburgs from Germany itself. Abel Servian was so concerned about this possibility that he even proposed contingency plans to Mazarin whereby Spanish help could be utilised, and such plans also included further efforts to unite Catholicism under France. If Sweden planned on playing the religious superpower card, Mazarin was told that France had to be ready to play it also. However, these extreme views of Sweden perhaps existed in the first place because of the levels of mutual distrust between the two powers, which became especially bad in late 1645 and early 1646. Axel Oxenstierna was said to be outraged by French military inconsistency and hesitance as well as the continuation of the Franco-Bavarian Accords that resulted in the mid-April ceasefire. If one looks at the situation from the Swedish point of view, it becomes clear that, far from plotting a Machiavellian strategy to bring down its ally, Swedish plenies and statesmen were just as concerned as what France was doing and planned to do. Croxton notes the issues. Quote, For their part, the Swedes had no intention of abandoning the French alliance, and certainly not of leading a Protestant crusade, although their ministers were shrewd enough to recognise the value of courting Protestant support. Instead, the Swedes were in a constant state of vexation over real or imagined French breaches of faith, such as Turenne's long delay in opening the campaign, supposed secret truce negotiations with Bavaria, and the possibility of a French imperial accord that would exclude Sweden. End quote. But the final straw had in fact come for Sweden in early November 1645, when France signed a treaty of friendship with Denmark shortly after Sweden had just formalised its peace treaty with that country. 
It was clearly not the most sensitive move for French statesmen to take, but Mazarin sought the deal so as to establish France on the same level of economic preference with the Dutch, in terms of the sound tolls, rather than as an exercise to hurt Sweden. When news of the deal got out though, it soured relations to the point that Mazarin elected to appoint a permanent ambassador to Sweden, which up to now had in fact not been done, somehow, and additionally he elected to send a French agent tasked with explaining the French perspectives. The moves were designed to reinforce to Sweden how important its friendship was to France. But the French plenies had actually already followed suit, and sent their own rep from Munster, which only goes to show how bad the situation was viewed in French minds. Mazarin had wanted to impress upon Sweden what it meant to France, but he felt that three Frenchmen landing in Sweden might convince Axox that his state had a greater control over French affairs than it had, and that it would use this leverage later on. Though the image of three French reps suddenly descending on the country after they had offended it is a bit funny, Axox didn't take advantage of the situation as Mazarin feared he would. Instead he spoke only to the newly appointed French ambassador, Pierre Chanou, about the Franco-Swedish issues, and informed Pierre that he would direct his addresses to the French government through this chain of communication in future. Arguments over who would call whose state's demands excessive and who was blocking whose progress, over who was trying to influence whose plenies, and over the true intentions of either, vis-a-vis the religious components of the Holy Roman Empire were resolved as was the particularly sore issue of the Swedes excluding the French rep from their negotiations with the Imperials in Osnabrück, and the French excluding the Swedish rep from their negotiations with the Imperials in Münster. In mid-February, Claude Avaux, a key French plenipotentiary, was sent to finalise the terms, and Axox eased up somewhat when faced with this by now pretty famous Frenchman. Avo helped resolve Franco-Swedish issues fully, so that by early March it was decided that France and Sweden would continue their alliance, that military pressure should be kept up until peace was signed, and that there would be uniformity on the negotiating stance of the two crowns, and that, crucially for France, the German prince's grievances would only be resolved by Swedish help alongside France, and not before France or Sweden had received their satisfaction in terms of land or war reparations. It was a good save for Davout. He had all but ensured that France and Sweden would endure together until the end, and that they were now far better in tune with each other's concerns, demands, and end goals. Although Mazarin did reassure his plenies of Swedish sincerity, he also urged caution. The key provision of keeping the negotiations of the two crowns in the same place meant that neither side could achieve their satisfaction, in other words their war aims, before the other. Both Mazarin and Axox feared the results of one side achieving all they had wanted before the other side had the chance to, since it might, in extreme cases, lead to abandonment of the cause, or in less extreme cases, lead to the satisfied party forcing the unsatisfied party to agree to less satisfactory terms. Just like France feared that the Dutch would make peace with Spain before the war ended then, both Sweden and France feared that the other would make peace with the Empire. Sweden even feared the results of France making peace with Spain to a degree, since it would mean France could turn its attention against the Holy Roman Empire and achieve preeminence in the negotiations with the Emperor. Seriously, these states had some huge underlying abandonment issues. 
Thus, we can now see what motivated Mazarin to want peace in 1646, despite France's apparently advantageous position. He feared the Dutch and Swedes abandoning France, or worse, of either simply not participating in the campaigns due to a... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com secret treaty, and then luring France to a devastating loss. Mazarin also wanted to avoid another campaign in Germany for the risk factor that was involved, and he preferred instead to gain French goals through the threat of military force against Bavaria, who could be used as a useful lobby against the emperor. It almost worked for Mazarin, because while Bavaria and France enjoyed a truce in mid-April, Maximilian was threatening Trotmansdorf in Münster that if he did not offer France all of Alsace without strings attached, then he would personally direct a Bavarian peace party towards France, and make peace not just for three weeks, but for good. Maximilian of Bavaria, as the stalwart of our podcast, probably deserves a reward for sticking in there longer than anyone else has in our narrative. And he did so by understanding the cards he could play, as well as, well, living a very long time. Trottmannsdorf caved in under Max's pressure, and on the 14th of April he officially offered Alsace to France. Yet the French plenies, striving for not just Alsace but also the fortresses, such as Brissac, that were viewed as essential to guard it, turned the offer down. Trottmannsdorf wasn't actually vested with the authority to offer Brissac, and as he contemplated the onset of the campaign season, he was again pestered by a distraught Maximilian, who couldn't understand why Trotmansdorf or the Emperor hadn't taken more diplomatic steps to shield Bavaria from attack. 
His level of panic, and Mazarin's combined hesitance to link up with Sweden, ensured that the three-week truce would be respected. For now. And Mazarin turned his hopeful eyes to Luxembourg, as we learned, in the hope of knocking Spain out of the war and teaching Dutch plenies a lesson. Mazarin desperately wanted to make a permanent peace with the Emperor and Bavaria at this stage for the additional reason, as well as all the others covered, that it would leave Spain alone and would enable Turenne to turn his full attention against the Spanish Netherlands. The question for Mazarin was then, would he authorise his plenies to compromise on their demands in Germany so as to conduct this strategy of an all-out attack against Spain? Mazarin then struck gold with his Austrian spy. You may remember before how we noted the problem with the security of court decisions. Well, around this time, at the end of April 1646, Mazarin was informed by his intelligence service that Ferdinand was willing to give in on Breisach. Armed with this info, Mazarin thus knew what the Imperials would be willing to give, and he could inform his plenies to ignore all other offers until they gave it. Knowledge was one of the greatest powers at this time, and this knowledge meant that Ferdinand could not dally or lie about the Imperial willingness to give ground, and that Trotmansdorf now similarly had the authority to hand Brysack over. Croxton explains the course of negotiations. Quote, it is therefore surprising to find that when Trotmansdorf did finally offer Breisach on the 29th of May, the plenipotentiaries rejected the imperial proposal because it did not include Philipsburg. The imperials were shocked by the French action, but the Bavarians, who would entice the emperor into giving up Breisach with the assurance that France would make peace, felt particularly betrayed. End quote. Philipsburg had been captured by France after a brief campaign, and its position would have been hard to supply during peacetime, owing to its position a good distance off the French border in Protestant German territory. It had been inserted most of the time in the previous negotiations as a kind of bargaining chip, whereby the French essentially pretended to really want it, so as to make themselves seem more gracious when they eventually gave it up in the negotiations. It was a reasonably well-known fact that Mazarin considered Philipsburg less valuable than Breisach, owing to the problems we just examined with it. However, just like every other negotiating state at the two cities, France would try to take more if it had the opportunity to, so Philipsburg certainly would have not been turned down if it had been offered. It was just the consolation prize along the Rhine as far as Mazarin was concerned. He would be more than happy to relinquish it if it meant gaining Breisach. This explains why Max of Bavaria couldn't understand why Mazarin's plenies fought now for Philipsburg, a fort which, while certainly beneficial during wartime, was merely a headache for France during a peace, and which Bavarian plenies had already been informed was not a major issue for France either way. Indeed, it does seem a strange about face for French plenies. Though it had been referred to as a French war aim in public, in private most would have known that Philipsburg was less of an obstacle to peace and not considered the deal-breaker or deal-maker that Breisach was. For Mazarin, though, the issue was not just Philipsburg, but the other issues attached to the small print. Ferdinand wasn't content to just hand over Breisach and Alsace without some small victories for himself, you see. He wanted France to allow Spain and Lorraine into the imperial negotiations. He wanted France to guarantee Catholic rights against Protestant demands, and he wanted France to pay an indemnity of four million Reichsthalers for its territorial gains. Mazarin wasn't opposing the treaty because of the absence of Philipsburg per se, but he was certainly aware that Philipsburg would be reachable with further French success, 
The real reason why he turned the offer down revolved around Ferdinand's aforementioned technicalities. Abel Servian, writing from Munster, noted that the Imperials added to Brysac so many restrictions that the affair cannot yet be considered resolved. For their part, the other French plenies despaired at the news of the additional demands of Trotmansdorf, who they claimed seemed to have the idea of laying us a trap to discredit us in the assembly and to put us into bad relations with our allies. The French plenies then wrote to Mazarin and told him that they had responded in kind with new demands of their own. They claimed they did this, not so much in the hope of obtaining them, as with the intention of arming ourselves against their demands, having judged that in order to bring affairs to the point where one wants them, it would be advantageous to hold firm on those things which one might give in, to oblige them to do the same on their side. Mazarin's dilemma then began to revolve around the issue of France making Sweden jealous by acquiring its satisfaction first. While it was not true that Sweden's plenies were so petty as to be offended by France achieving its aims before they did, Mazarin erroneously believed that they were. He believed that if France first resolved its imperial issues, acquired what it wanted and then snubbed Sweden by moving Turenne's army away from the empire to attack Luxembourg, thereby preventing the link up with Torstensen, then the Swedes would be totally offended. The best way to avoid a campaign in Germany was to sign a complete peace, but Mazarin was told that Swedish plenies were not making progress as fast as he'd originally thought they were, and that thus Sweden was some time away from making peace with the Habsburgs. If they were not at peace with the Habsburgs, then the Swedes had no incentive to make it now before their satisfaction was achieved and while they possessed the military supremacy within the HRE to tip the balance further in their favour. Mazarin thus reluctantly agreed to allow Turenne to link up with the Swedes, though he would continue to stall him wherever possible, and his plenies followed suit, believing that at any moment, a truce with the Emperor would be signed that would enable Turenne to march against Luxembourg instead. Mazarin's hesitance and Sweden's militancy were complicated in early June 1646 by the worsening situation in Hesse, that German principality allied to France and Sweden. We've encountered Hesse before, and just like before, when I tried to skim over the most overbearing of details, I'm going to try to do the same here. Here's what you need to know. In 1604, the ruler of all of Hesse died and left the region split into two major pieces of inheritance a Lutheran son and a Calvinist cousin, who would inherit what became known as Hesse Darmstadt and Hesse Castle, respectively. By 1645, the fact that the two were distant relatives didn't detract from the tension between the two Hesses, since the Lutheran Darmstadt had allied itself to the Emperor, and the Calvinist Castle had allied itself to Sweden and then France. After the Second Battle of Nordlingen in August 1645, the ruler of Hesse Castle, Emily Elizabeth, started to conduct campaigns against her Hessian rival, and she withdrew her levies in French and Swedish service to prepare for the war. In the meantime, Bavaria had withdrawn its forces, limited as they were, nearby to Hesse, in the hopes of attacking Hesse Castle and aiding the by now Habsburg ally Hesse Darmstadt. Ferdinand had in fact been contacted by the ruler of Hesse Darmstadt and asked for aid. This was the kind of military involvement in the HRE that Mazarin had feared. If Hesse Castle were defeated, then France would lose a major recruitment source. 
yet the Swedes were already on their way, and pressured the Imperials to such a degree that Ferdinand urged Maximilian of Bavaria to send Bavarian forces to link up with the Imperials. Maximilian initially hesitated, because as per the terms of his truce with France, if the French didn't aid the Swedes, then the Bavarians couldn't aid the Imperials. Yet, Turenne still scrambled to defend Hess Castle and balance the Bavarian numbers, who he believed were only a short time from foregoing the truce and joining the Imperials. Mazarin informed him that he'd have to wait until the official end of the truce. Turenne, a Calvinist and less of a fan of the 30 Catholic Bavaria than Mazarin may have been, had no qualms about breaking the truce, since he believed Max would elect to do the same, and it was an emergency in any case. Yet Mazarin held firm, so Turenne went around him and sent a message to the Swedes, now under the command of Carl Gustav Wrangel, since Torstensen became overcome with gout and had to withdraw to Stockholm in early April 1646. Thank God, because I'm well sick of saying Torstensen. This letter had the effect of making the Swedes approach the Rhine as though they expected to link up with Turenne, even though Turenne had been reprimanded for going behind Mazarin's back and couldn't yet join the Swedes until the truce with Bavaria ended. Seeing the Swedes approach the Rhine convinced Max that the French were foregoing the truce though, so he sought to move first and apply what remained of Bavaria's strength to Ferdinand. This ironically gave Turenne the excuse he needed. Now he could tell Mazarin that Max was clearly violating the truce because Bavarian soldiers were joining the Imperials. Mazarin thus elected to go with the flow and send Turenne to join Wrangel. After all this though, Maximilian still hesitated and acted as though the truce was ongoing with France. He wouldn't attack Turenne or Wrangel while they were alone and this enabled Wrangel to link up with Turenne during the potentially dangerous time period that Wrangel was outnumbered and Turenne was rushing to join up with him at the end of the truce. To join the Swedes though, Turenne had to negotiate with the Dutch so he could cross the river at the town of Wiesel, 120 miles down south from the Swedish position, go across the river and then back up towards the Swedish position. Mazarin feared that in the meantime, Wrangel would be destroyed by the combined Imperial Bavarian force, and the Swedes indeed complained of the slow French progress. But by mid-July, they were placated somewhat by the hasty decision to send 4,000 raised French levies in Hamburg towards Wrangel. This now uncertain military situation, with Turenne marching as fast as he could to join an outnumbered Swedish army, persuaded Mazarin that the time for a favourable peace had thus passed not until France was definitively on top militarily, as it appeared it was at the beginning of the year, could French demands be secured. The very fact that Imperials and Bavarians were still capable of drawing levies together in the first place seemed to confirm Mazarin's original fears, that a single, negative, military confrontation could spell French ruin. If Turenne couldn't get to Wrangel in time, or if Wrangel was simply destroyed, then that would immediately throw the French military situation out of whack, once again. In the meantime, while all this was going on, French plenies and their imperial counterparts dithered away on Alsatian issues that I won't bore you with the technicalities of. However, the issue of Philipsburg is worth mentioning due to the amusing part that the Elector of Trier played in its status. 
the Elector of Trier was one of the original seven electors of 1618, before everything went belly up in the HRE. But by 1645 he was a French ally. Basically, in the fact that he had asked, if you remember from a previous episode, for French protection as the Swedes had approached. This had been accepted. The French were like, yay, and Ferdinand was like, you're under arrest, and took him prisoner for almost a decade, starting in 1632 and ending in 1641, before the French really did anything. By the time he did his time, the Elector of Trier, an ambitious chap by the name of Philip von Sautern, was understandably sore at both the Imperials and French. The former for having imprisoned him, and the latter for claiming to be his protector and then doing nothing while he languished in an imperial prison. Philip von Sautern, a Catholic and determined to halt the spread of Protestantism within his lands, had attempted to mould Philipsburg in the years before into a bulwark against the denomination before his arrest, and upon his release his idea of what Philipsburg should be hadn't faded. What this effectively meant was, while the French usually sought Alsace, Brysac and Philipsburg in their demands for satisfaction within the HRE, you now had a wild card, Sautern, trying to play one side off against the other and keep Philipsburg for himself, all the while being under the supposed protection of France. It made for some interesting diplomacy, as Sautern didn't want to offend the French but hoped that by the 1632 treaty he had signed with them, whereby he had placed himself under their protection, this would grant him a strong position in their eyes. As Croxton notes though, Sautern's plenies were less sensitive. Quote, Sautern's plenipotentiaries were less concerned about offending the French and more forthright in their demands of Philipsburg than was the elector. They rejected French assurances that France only wanted a garrison right in the fortress, and refused to support French territorial demands even in the Empire. The French plenipotentiaries were shocked at this. Servienne, conflating the actions of Sauterne's plenipotentiaries with the actions of the Elector, complained that he seems so strongly German that I fear his affection for his country makes him forget what he owes to a neighbouring king. End quote. Sauterne was eventually won over on the 19th of July by the combined threats of reinstating the Calvinist Palatinate family and carrying on negotiations without him. Sautern couldn't get the French garrison to swear an oath of loyalty to him under the treaty, and he also didn't manage to seize any of the 50,000 Reichsthalers that the French plenipotentiary charged with making the deal had brought with him to sweeten the deal. However, he did get a guarantee of his sovereignty over all of Philipsburg. The French were merely allowed to garrison it and use it as a refuge. The issue of Philipsburg distracted the French plenies from the real fact on the ground. Once Turenne crossed the Rhine on the 20th of July, it was obvious that they had feared Wrangel's decimation for nothing. The only ones being decimated were the Imperial Bavarian force, whose numbers had been steadily dwindling by disease, desertion and starvation. When the two forces joined up on the 10th of August, they were far better supplied than their enemy, owing to the fact that their Hessian allies, who hailed from nearby, could supply them. Despite their clear advantage in position and supply though, the Imperial commander, Leopold William, who we last saw lose the Second Battle of Breitenfeld in October 1642, elected to stay in his reinforced position. 
that is, until his path of withdrawal south was cut off by the French when they seized a key bridge from the Bavarians. Thus, the Habsburg Bavarian force appeared trapped, until Leopold decided to have a brainwave and move north, which would take the fight further into Allied Hesse Castle and perhaps enable a link-up with some of the enclaves of Imperial garrisons there. For a time, Wrangel and Turenne considered pursuing him, until they realised a key fact. The routes to Bavaria were now completely unguarded, and its lands were virtually ungarrisoned. Whereas before, Max had seemed at least a tad confident that his demands could be met, so long as his forces stayed in the field and the two crowns did not win a huge victory, by mid-August 1646 he was insane with panic, a feeling not felt so strongly since the eve of Gustavus's invasion in 1632. When he learned of Leopold's withdrawal north on the 19th of August 1646, he ordered him to return and save Bavaria, or else he threatened Ferdinand that Bavaria would capitulate unconditionally. Leopold had actually been making some waves by defeating the outnumbered Hesse Castle forces with the Habsburg ally Hesse Darmstadt, but the latter's success depended on soldiers that were now badly needed elsewhere. This military breakthrough of the two crowns, before it had even made any real progress, transformed the negotiations in the two cities, so that by the 20th of August 1646, Davo was writing to Mazarin of significant progress where the one issue of Philipsburg lingered. Though we know full well that by the 20th of August the Elector of Trier had already sorted out the issue of Philipsburg with France, the Imperial Plenies as yet did not know this. If you remember before, for a while Sweden and France had worked on getting Ferdinand to stop claiming he was the sole voice of the Empire and to let other German princes send their Plenies to represent them instead. If Ferdinand had still been operating in the former position, and his plenies had been reporting directly to him, then he would have been fully informed of the situation in Philipsburg in August. However, as it stood in 1646, the Emperor no longer could make the claim to speak for the whole Empire. Thus, the Elector of Trier could send his own plenies and not always inform Ferdinand and his plenies what was discussed or decided. Now it should be even more clear why Sweden and France had demanded the Germans represent themselves. Because Philip Sautern, the Elector of Trier, had sent his own reps and made his own deals, France was able to pull a fast one over Habsburg and Bavarian plenies. Croxton explains the events. Quote, the first and most pressing objective remained Philipsburg. Contarini, the Venetian mediator, upbraided the French complaining that they had always said that they would make peace if they received Brysac. This new demand had ruined everything and caused the Imperials to adopt a tougher stance. A week later, Contarini again objected to the Philipsburg demand, arguing that the Imperials could not offer it without first submitting the issue to a vote of the estates. He also pointed out the difficulty in getting the estates to approve the transfer when Philip Sautern, the Elector of Trier, its owner, remained vehemently opposed. At that moment, the French revealed the July 19th treaty with Sautern, completely undermining Contarini's line of reasoning. Bavarian and Habsburg resistance to the surrender of Felsberg collapsed, 
France had achieved the major objective of her summer negotiations. End quote. By keeping its deals with the Elector of Trier secret until the last possible moment, French plenies had been armed with a rare weapon in the negotiations. Surprise, and they had used it brilliantly, even waiting for the Venetian mediator to wander into the trap of technicalities that only a formal agreement with the Elector of Trier could solve. It was a masterstroke, and it enabled French plenies to solidify their further demands, and get through niggling issues, such as the morass of technicalities surrounding Alsace. Was it a duchy? Did upper and lower elements of it exist? Did its estates have any power? Who would they answer to now? Etc. Croxton notes that the finer points of Alsatian ownership were still being solved as late as 1664, and even then, only by the aid of the bureaucrats in Strasbourg. With their problems apparently resolved, French plenies, no doubt with some disbelief that it may soon be over, signed their preliminary peace treaty with Ferdinand on the 13th of September 1646, which had the final terms of French ownership as agreed over Alsace, Brissac and Philipsburg, as well as a French indemnity of 3 million livres and a French agreement to pay two-thirds of the accumulated debts of Alsace. French plenies then went to Osnabrück, since a part of the agreement also included a clause whereby the French promised to help mediate their Swedish ally towards a peace. It had been quite a year for French diplomacy. The strategy of pressuring Max and using him to pressure the Emperor had worked brilliantly. It had resulted in an offer of Alsace and Brissac on the 29th of May, 1646, but this was declined owing to the fear of what Sweden would think, as well as other issues. While they pondered over it, negotiations with the Elector of Trier bore fruit, and military operations greatly advanced the French position. Despite the fact that Sweden didn't appear much closer to making peace in September, when France signed the treaty, than in May when it elected not to, the key difference was the fact that the campaign had come to an end for the year, and this, despite the fears of Dutch abandonment, impatience regarding Swedish demands and the dangers of the campaign, had the effect of convincing the French plenies that by the time it was campaign season again in the following spring, Sweden would be at peace with its issues resolved. They may have seemed ambitious, but French plenies could not help but hope that after all they'd achieved so far, Swedish satisfaction could be next. What had once been a casual addition to French demands, an unwanted fort, placed strategically in the French response to be used as a future French bargaining ship, the troublesome fortress of Philipsburg, and had once been so vehemently opposed by Ferdinand, now sat as one of the key pillars of the French peace. Croxton notes the significance of this. Quote, in short, Philipsburg had been in no sense the cause of the continuation of the war by France. Even in September, when its acquisition seemed assured, the plenipotentiaries wrote of it as that for which we have wished more than we hoped. These same plenipotentiaries were united in fearing the results of another campaign, which, to their way of thinking, could only work to the French disadvantage. When it became clear that another campaign was inevitable, they yielded to it reluctantly, but they used it to their advantage once they had accepted it. The increased demands in their response on the 1st of June were a reaction to the conditions attached to the imperial offer, and were intended to be bargained away. 
At no time did they speak of using France's military advantage gained during the campaign to achieve anything other than the dropping of the imperial conditions and the acquisition of Philipsburg. Nevertheless, it was precisely French military success that enabled the plenipotentiaries to achieve their demands so casually added on the 1st of June. Military affairs may therefore be said to have had an additional role in the increasing terms France achieved in the preliminary peace treaty of the 13th of September. End quote. The 13th of September 1646 was by no means the end of the war for France, but it was the end of the beginning for the negotiations. The French plenies that went to Osnabrück to accelerate the Swedish talks were frustrated by the issue of the German Protestant princes and their pressing need to solve their problems with the Emperor, a development which stalled the talks. Mazarin then decided that he wanted to stall the talks until he could achieve a peace with Spain, something which would save France from a weakening of its position and vulnerability to a Habsburg counter-attack following an eventual Franco-Spanish peace or which would also avoid covert inter-Hausberg aid while France was at war with Spain. When Bavaria signed the Treaty of Ulm in March 1647 and Turin was sent against the Low Countries, this finally seemed a possibility. Then it all went wrong. Germans within the French army rebelled and defected to the Swedes or disappeared. The attacks against the Spanish in Luxembourg floundered without Dutch aid, Maximilian grew impatient with peace talks and re-entered the war in September of that year, and Mazarin had to send Turenne back down south to aid the now weakened Swedish position, so that by the end of 1647 it would appear as though little had militarily changed. Mazarin would continue to cling on to the hope of including Spain in the Austrian Habsburg peace, though this would prove fruitless as we know. Trotmansdorf also tried to pull a fast one on Mazarin by reissuing the preliminary treaty of the 13th of September in June 1647 with new terms less beneficial to France. The chief imperial negotiator hoped to capitalise upon the confused state of affairs within and without of France, and the rumoured beginnings of dissent that would soon explode into the revolt known as the Fronde. Yet it is important to note what France accomplished in the years just before the final peace. It is very easy to accuse the states involved in the Thirty Years' War of making it up as they went along, and indeed France appears as no exception to this. However, if we contrast French gains in the end treaty with the gains of its allies or enemies, then historical criticisms of French performance in the Thirty Years' War appear mostly unfounded. There was a great deal of realisation at the time that Mazarin had achieved a coup by gaining so much where the French had had initially such small expectations. Davo even going as far to say that If the late Cardinal Richelieu had returned to the world, he would hardly be able to believe that since his death your eminence had carried our affairs to such a high point. The advantages that France and her allies have gained since the death of Cardinal Richelieu give us reason to hope for greater satisfaction in Germany than one would have hoped for at that time. Indeed, it seemed as though nostalgic references to the late First Minister of France were even on the lips of France's enemies, to the point that when a French plenipotentiary told Trottmansdorf of Mazarin's admiration for him, the chief imperial negotiator is said to have replied, Cardinal Mazarin has done more against us and negotiates now with more rigour than Cardinal Richelieu or any other French subject. 
one could certainly not deny that French achievements were all the more impressive because they occurred during a regency, a point which the French plenies expressed to the Queen. Your Majesty will always have this glory, that during a royal minority, when all concerns have always been on keeping the state whole, you will not only have extended French borders towards their oldest limits, but also to have acquired two very important fortresses on the Rhine. Perhaps French achievements are all the more impressive when one considers that they essentially piggybacked on Swedish military supremacy during many crucial periods, and often depended on their Scandinavian ally for military support to a far greater degree than Sweden arguably did on France. France certainly supplied the money, but Sweden supplied the arms, the experience, and the important distractions that gave at first France necessary breathing space and thereafter enabled French high command to actually carve out its own position on the Allied direction in the Holy Roman Empire. Sweden certainly would acquire Pomerania's western portion, thanks to a diplomatic effort by France to mediate between Sweden and Brandenburg. But they would spend so much time squabbling with the great elector of Brandenburg over it thereafter. Furthermore, Sweden's imperial enclaves of Bremen and other free cities paled in comparison to the French acquisition of Alsace, which trumped everything that Richelieu could have dreamed of as he began the war in 1635. When one considers that Sweden reversed the trend of the Thirty Years' War, gave us Gustavus Adolphus, and continuously placed the Habsburgs in peril, it is surprising that they did not gain more than they did in the post-war settlement. Also of note is the fact that France gained arguably more secure and prosperous territory from its conquests since Alsace and Lorraine are undeniably French today, whereas Pomerania is now definitively German. But it would hardly be fair to compare the two states. After all, Sweden had a population of barely one-tenth of France's 20 million. It had been on the periphery of the European consciousness for centuries, and had only recently emerged from a regency of its own, with Christina coming of age in 1644 during the Swedish War with Denmark. Sweden had come of age much like its queen had in the years since Gustavus Adolphus picked it up in 1611. Its generation had seen Sweden transform not just the Scandinavian but also the European balance of power, and it was now a definite part of the new European order. Sweden had arguably saved Europe from a Habsburg hegemony, and had also played a large part in first encouraging and then assisting France in the latter's shaky early years of its own war effort. It had spat out great generals like Banner and Torstensson, as well, of course, as Gustavus Adolphus, all of whom we followed closely. Axel Oxenstierna perhaps deserves the lion's share of the rewards as Sweden's resident statesman, the one constant throughout Sweden's entire war effort. Axox guided Sweden through its toughest times and was able to hold on to the vision of victory while those at home in Parliament bemoaned defeat. His interactions with Mazarin and Richelieu thereafter must have been something to behold, and I can only add him, as well as perhaps Richelieu and Mazarin, to my list of other statesmen that I would love to have dinner with sometime. Bismarck, of course, is already on the list, just in case you are wondering. Much credit must go to Mazarin also for appointing those plenipotentiaries such as Abel Servian and Claude de Avaux that we continually refer to. His decision to appoint those of superior skill regardless of their personal beliefs also paid off, 
when he selected the Calvinist Turenne to lead the French armies. Though he did suffer his share of defeats, Turenne was essential for maintaining the French army in its state of readiness, and he quickly acquired an understanding of the situation along the Rhine that made him indispensable to Mazarin, as we saw. Mazarin was the essential successor to Richelieu, but though he certainly followed the policies of his predecessor, it was Mazarin who developed them to the point of realisation. France was certainly fortunate in the 17th century to have Richelieu, followed by Mazarin, followed by Louis XIV, at the helm of the country. As this sequence of leaders prove, and indeed as history has proved elsewhere, all it takes is a smattering of quality leaders to guide a country out of obscurity or troubles and onto the path of greatness. All the better for that state if the leaders follow in rapid succession. Gustavus Adolphus and Axel Oxenstierna are another example of this, and just like the French story, it seems poignant to leave this narrative behind, having experienced all their fortunes and failures, and having been there to see Europe change so dramatically with them at the forefront, as it did during the 30 years of this special. Mention of the opposite side of the fence is also necessary, for fairness sake. Ferdinand III was a better man in my view than his father, although history will record that technically he was less successful. Ferdinand II came the closest to perhaps any German emperor to bringing all the states, microstates, principalities, princes, electors and dukes together under his banner. The means by which he did this, conquest, intimidation and strategic alliances, were of course unsavoury, and his end goals and dreams regarding the HRE, that revolved around intolerance and religious uniformity, led him to drag in pretty much every power of consequence in Europe when he had come so close in the end to total victory, which led, as we'll soon see, to the eventual defeat of his son. This son was less religiously minded, but certainly didn't wish to cave under the pressure and give up without a fight. His defeat came as a result of the cumulative effects of three decades worth of fighting, but he was arguably more amenable and some would say sensible when it came to understanding the value of peace than his father had been. That's not to say he didn't make France work for everything it got during the negotiations, only when he knew his cause was lost did he grant France its satisfaction, and even then only piece by piece. As we'll see, the only thing that could make him abandon his Spanish Habsburg ally was the threat that further campaigns in his domains would mean the total collapse of his hereditary lands and its capitulation to Sweden. It is difficult to say whether Ferdinand II would have given in at all. The war had not been kind in the end to the Spanish Habsburgs. In 1618 they ruled an empire mostly at peace with the greatest resources and power of any state in Europe and in fact the world. But by 1648 it was mostly gone. The failure to better the situation domestically led, as we saw before, to the stagnation of the economy and the overtaking of Spanish infrastructure by its neighbours. Yet it was the revolts of Catalonia and Portugal, supported so gleefully by France, that really spelt its domestic end. In 1618, the Dutch were tearing themselves apart, while they enjoyed a 12-year truce with Spain. By 1648, Spain had acknowledged Dutch sovereignty and the fact that its 80 years war continued so forcefully and so expensively as a constant fixture of Spanish foreign and state policy had ultimately 
completely failed. Spain could still claim an overseas empire unparalleled in Europe, but Europe was moving on, and it wouldn't matter if Spain could maintain its empire abroad if it couldn't defeat its enemies at home. The fear of being abandoned by the Austrian Habsburgs in 1648 almost caused capitulation to France for fear of further damage, but the war would continue for another 11 years. The events of that war and its conclusion at the Peace of the Pyrenees in 1659 are unfortunately outside of our podcast coverage. But the fact that by that stage Louis XIV had definitively come of age should tell you everything you need to know about how it all went down, and how the omens established in 1648 were ultimately fulfilled. Well folks, we are so close to the end of the 30 Years War special. Our next episode will be our last, so please check your feeds and join me as we conclude what has been an incredible experience. Today we have looked at the closing events that would make Westphalia. Next time we will tell the story of the final chapter, and close the book of the Thirty Years' War and all its ideas, technicalities, intrigues, characters, and of course diplomacy for good. My name is Zach and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.96, Making Westphalia, part 3. Thanks! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 